here's what we're going to talk about today. I want to take you to a couple passages in the Bible. We're going to start with one. We're going to end up with a couple more. And in between, I want to just explore this idea. What, what if Jesus had never been born? What if Jesus had never been born? Now, in our movie, you see the main character there, played by Jimmy Stewart. He is in the middle of a pickle. Uh, he's financially frustrated, relationally frustrated. He feels stuck in life, and he begins to ponder whether or not his life has made any difference. And I want to give away the entire film in case you haven't seen it. By the way, anybody in the room not seen the film? Raise your hand, anybody? A couple of you. You're not even Christian. I don't want to hear you. All right. Um, no, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. You've got to watch this film, all right? It's just Americana. You've got to watch it. Anyway, he, he, he experiences his life through the lens of this movie of what it would look like if he was never born. And, of course, he comes to the realization that his life does matter, and it's, it's worth living. Well, it got me thinking, well, what if, what if Jesus had never been born? I mean, we celebrate Christmas at the time of the birth of our Savior, the baby that came in the manger, grows up, gives his life on the cross, is resurrected from the tomb. But what if, what if that had never happened? And there are a group of people who are called alternative historians, and they explore stuff like this, right? They explore, for instance, what if Napoleon had escaped to America? What would that have done to history as, as we know it? What, what if Hitler had won World War II. What, what was that? And so these geeks get in a room and they explore all of this, this stuff, these scholar types. They get in the room and they explore all the implications of these alternative views. My, my, my favorite one they've done is, what if the Bengals had better defense? What would that, what'd that do to, to history around here, right? So what we're going to do for just a few minutes is just explore the basic question, what if Jesus had never been born? Now, what I want to do, though, before we jump into that, is I want to take you to a place in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 9. So please turn there if you didn't bring a Bible on the side screens when we get there. Isaiah chapter 9 happens long before the birth of Jesus. And there are some, some really poignant moments of literature in this book of your Bible called Isaiah where God moves on the prophet whose name is Isaiah and begin, he begins to kind of project what life is going to be like when God finally sends the Messiah, the long-awaited one that's going to right every wrong, set everything straight, pave the path to God, bring harmony to humanity, and it's something that the Jewish people, this group of people God raised up to bless the whole world through them, it's something that they had been anticipating. And so Isaiah begins to write, in kind of poetic language, he describes what the world is going to be like as a result of this baby's birth. This king whose kingdom would be like none other, whose reign would never end, who would bring in the perfect justice, and not just justice, this king would give his life as a ransom for all. He would truly serve the people he led. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, some very just beautifully descriptive words that kind of set the bar of what to expect when the child is born. Here's what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. The power will be upon his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. By the way, this is one of seven places in the Old Testament where God is referred to as Father. It's not the preferred name for God in the Old Testament. The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. When He reigns, there's going to be peace, ever-increasing peace. And He'll reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And then just to kind of seal a moment, the prophet writes, the zeal, the excitement, the energy, the power of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And in poetic language, the prophet, moved upon by the Holy Spirit, writes what the future is going to look like. 
And he really raises the bar of what the birth of this Messiah is going to mean to the world. Now, a lot of us in the room have been impacted by that baby born in the manger. We've committed our life to him. We've acknowledged, as I say almost every week, that the Lord of the universe doesn't just do a good job running the universe. We're inviting him to run our lives. We make the Lord of the universe the Lord of our lives. And it's made a big difference in many of our lives. We acknowledged at one point we're a sinner. We asked that Savior to save us and wipe away our sins. And it's impacted our eternity for heaven but it's impacted our lives here and now. And on an individual level, it's made a huge difference. It impacts things like money that we were talking about. It touches our relationships. In my life, my marriage is radically different because of the active work of Jesus in my life and in my wife's life. In my parenting, it has made a huge difference. And it's real important sometimes to look at the birth of Jesus in almost a a selfish individualistic kind of way. What does it mean for you specifically that Jesus was born? That he came and gave his life, that he set up a a royal kingdom, a heavenly kingdom that doesn't just reign in the heavens but touches earth. What does that mean for your life? On Christmas Eve Eve when we get together tomorrow night, I'm going to help people understand the greatest gift ever given. And if you have yet to invite a friend, um, I ask you, please, take some time to do that. They're going to hear some incredible music. We're going to look at what is kind of a modern Christmas movie, uh, a Christmas story. Have you you seen this one about the Red Ryder BB gun? One of my favorites. We're going to look at that. We're going to talk candidly about on an individual level, what does it mean that Jesus has come and how do we begin and continue in a relationship with him? But today, for just a few moments, I want to pull past the individual, and kind of talk about the impact of Jesus on the world. About 40, 50 years ago, a very influential writer, a guy by the name, whose name's kind of fallen off of the popularity list, but his name was Dr. James Allen Francis. He wrote in a newspaper op-ed article about the impact of Jesus. I don't like to read to you several sentences in a row, but I want to read to you what he said to just kind of set the tone for the rest of our time together. Here's what Dr. James Allen Francis said about Jesus and his birth. Here is a man who was born in in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside of a really big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place from which he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials of himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen to twenty wide centuries have come and gone to this day. And he's still the centerpiece of human history. He's the leader of the column of progress. And then he writes these words, 
I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that were ever built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Here's the truth. The life, teaching, and claims of Jesus has impacted this world. Our world would be very different if Jesus had not been born. That's our first point. Our world would be very different. I want to tease this out just a little bit. Now, I don't have time to document it all, but I ask you to use the greatest gift ever given to humanity to document this on your own. Google, all right, or Wikipedia. You can, you can figure this stuff out. It doesn't take much to, de- to begin to uncover the impact of the birth of Jesus. You just heard Lisa describe what happens in India when a girl is born. She has a one in four chance of surviving into her early teen years, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. Currently, historically, the plight of women around the globe has been an interesting journey. One of the greatest thinkers of the Western intellectual tradition, uh, one of our great-great-grandfathers intellectually, speaking, a guy by the name of Aristotle, maybe you've heard of him, here's what he said about women in trying to define their value and worth. He said that, that a woman's value is somewhere between that of a free man who was not quite a citizen, right? so not even the, the greatest man, somewhere between a free man and a slave. Now, he wasn't, you know, saying that was a bad thing. He was just describing what was going on. That was his opinion. When you look at what happens in modern-day China, the same kind of gender side that happens, when you look what happens around the globe in the Middle East in the treatment of women, women in our day, and you compare those treatments currently and historically to what Jesus said and did, you get a very different picture. Everywhere Jesus went, he elevated the status of women. Now, Jesus came into a world that was much more stark than our present situation in America for women. Much more like India and China today. Much more like the Middle East today than American culture for women. And Jesus, if you read his story in the New Testament, and I know a lot of people that don't like Jesus don't like Christianity, are what I would call emotional atheists, not just intellectual atheists. You know, they haven't really read the stories of Jesus. They haven't looked at the Bible. They've only heard what others have said. But when you read the stories of Jesus and you see how he treated women, it's a radically different experience that they had with him than they had anywhere else in the culture. It's a big deal. In fact, when you look at some of the major players in the New Testament, they're women. You have Mary and Martha. Outside of the apostles, Jesus spent more time with Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus than anybody else. You have the infamous story of the woman who washed Jesus' feet. And everybody around is saying, who is she to touch him? Not only is he a great teacher, but he's a man. Who is she? And he says of her that what she has done is going to be praised throughout all of the rest of time. Jesus put a big emphasis on women. The first people to the tomb to witness the event of the resurrection were women. The early leaders of the church, many of them were women. 
When you look at what Jesus did with women, and when you look at what the early followers of Jesus did with women, it gives you a radically different picture than the rest of human history combined. Now, I get it. When you compare what the status of women is by a simple reading of Scripture sometimes with what we believe in our modern American society, it should be. Sometimes it creates a little bit of, of you know, the tilting of the head or a little bit of disconnect for us. But, but I think it's really unfair to impose upon history our modern values When you look at what Jesus did in the time that he did it, in the culture in which he did it, it was revolutionary. Jesus loved women, and he saw in them an implicit value, a value that he knew they had long before he ever came in the form of a baby because he reigned in heaven with the Father, a value he and the Father put into women when they, like men, were created in the image of God. Can you imagine if Jesus had called a committee If the father had called a committee and said, I want to give the gift of Jesus to the world, can you imagine what that conversation would have looked like? Let me tell you what they would have never chosen to do. They would have never chosen to trust a teenage girl with the Savior of the world. God, his value for women is very high. It breaks the heart of God for women to be mistreated. It breaks the heart of God for women to be considered second-class people to be disposable. It completely breaks God's heart. And one of the things you'll discover kind of against the current culture war against Christianity, and we'll just leave that at rest, that one statement, right? Shoot me your Facebook emails, that's fine. But against the culture war of Christianity, wherever Christianity has flourished in our culture, in the world, throughout the last couple thousand years, wherever Christianity has flourished, the plight of women and children has been improved. Why is that the case? the case because out of the heart of God flows a value for women. And our world is different today and better today because Jesus came and elevated the status of women by what he said and what he did and what his early adopters did in his name. The value of women is dramatically improved wherever Christianity flourishes. And I'll go so far as to say, and of course I'm an insider, Wherever Christianity is marginalized, pushed to the edges, family, women, and children suffer. This is one of the big differences that Jesus has made. The treatment of women in our world is different because Jesus was born. But that's not the only difference that was made. The treatment of women, but also, and I've referenced it already, the value of children. In Jesus' day, here's some of the ways children were treated. Children couldn't eat until dad had finished his meal. They were literally the same as servants until they got of the appropriate legal age. They were to be seen and not heard and often not seen. They were discarded. And in in the ancient Near East, until a child was eight years old, dad could literally, and mom could literally, man or female, just leave them out in the cold. When Jesus came on this earth and began to walk around and teach, and he had that popularity in those first few years of his ministry, he attracted everybody's attention, men, women, and children. And there are these poignant moments in Jesus' life where he engaged children in a radically different way than other people who had status, elevated popularity, or power treated children. Do you remember the stories? Jesus is teaching, and the little children kind of rush him. And the disciples, mimicking the culture of the day, say, you know, stay away. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he scolds them. He says, look, let the little children come to me. 
Let them come. And everybody looks back, and the parents look back, and Jesus not only lets them get close, he, he doesn't just touch them, but he pulls them close up onto his lap. The vermin of society. When you look at what the followers of Jesus did in the first few years and in the last 2,000 years since he was born in that manger that we celebrate, it's pretty dramatic what Jesus and his followers have done with the status of children in our world. They declared that life was sacred. Children are not discardable. That's not the way that Jesus' followers act. And in embodying the teachings of Jesus and rallying around the ethos of Jesus, the followers of Jesus built orphanages all over the known world. One of the reasons I'm partial to Christianity, besides the fact that I believe it's true, the ultimate truth, when you look at what followers of Jesus have done, and I know there are examples where we've done it poorly. It's like the best families in the world have problems, so I get it. But when you look at what we've done just with the plight of children, I mean, look what we're doing in India. And then multiply that literally a million times over. The vast majority of the humanitarian work for the last 2,000 years comes from a single solitary source. Not all, but the vast majority. Committed followers of Jesus simply living out the teachings and values of Jesus. Current estimates, you do your own research, nine out of every ten orphanages currently operating in the world were started by active Jesus followers, people who were claiming to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus, elevating the status of these globally discardable people. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around in our modern suburban mindset because, you know, so much of our life is consumed with our children. But that's not the case globally. I'll say it again, wherever Christianity flourishes, the plight of women and children is elevated. And wherever Christianity has been marginalized, families, women, and children take a hit. So with women and children, the birth of Jesus has made a dramatic difference. Let me give you another category maybe you haven't thought of. When it comes to the eradication of slavery in the world, and this one gets a little bit of, of a debate on it because of some of the stuff that the Bible says about slavery, and I want to help you understand that. Before I get to that in a moment, though, let me take you to, in our modern age, the, the primary early warrior against slavery was a British evangelical. His name was William Wilberforce. And he was operating in England, and God had touched his life, and he came to believe that the Bible was true, and he committed his life to Jesus, and then he dedicated his life to eradicating what he believed was the moral scourge of his day, slavery. Long before we had our civil war, and long before we dealt with all this stuff over here, Wilberforce was operating, and the precursors of Wilberforce was already moving, but his movement was gaining significant momentum. And without a war, he helped English, England abolish slavery. Maybe you've heard of another guy. If you haven't heard of the guy, maybe you've heard of what PBS calls the most famous song of all time. You know, you know what it is? Amazing Grace. Most famous, popular song of all time written by a guy named John Newton, a former slave trader. Gave his life, made bunches of money, and at one point in his life, he had a direct encounter with the baby born in the manger, the Savior on a cross, risen from a tomb. And he wrote the words to the song Amazing Grace, that he had dedicated his life to such atrocities and that God would save him from that. 
And he was literally amazed at the grace he was given. And because of his commitment to Christ, he writes this powerful song. The early American abolitionist society, two-thirds of them were pastors committed to living out the value that Jesus gave them, that life is important and people shouldn't be bought and sold. And around the world today, the people at the forefront of dealing with the sexual slave trade are Christians. They're not the only people, but they're the forefront. The vast majority are doing it because of their Christian values and because of the impact of Jesus on their lives. Now, the Bible talks a little bit about slavery, and it never once specifically says, end it. And it's real easy to look at our modern sensibilities and apply them to the Bible and say, what's going on there? But let me put what the Bible's talking about in its historical context. A time when slaves literally were, again, disposable. There's this recurring theme of disposable people in human history. And not so far past. We don't have to go any further than the 1900s to look at a group of people who thought that, all, that, that certain groups of people were disposable. And in a time when slaves were literally property, Jesus and his early followers who embodied what he taught and what he believed, they began to write words like this. Masters, don't mistreat your slaves. In a time when it was perfectly legal, you could do what you want, they were discardable. Masters, don't mistreat your slaves. And another whole category of disposable people were elevated and followers of Jesus were encouraged to treat them right. And when you trace that thought all the way to the end, it's the very idea that Wilberforce and Newton rallied around to leverage this thing called the, the abolitionist movement where slavery was dealt with in our modernish history, and it's the very thing that people dealing with human trafficking today are wrestling with, those very same teachings of the Bible where the position of slaves were elevated. So you have the, the treatment of women, the, the value of kids, the eradication of slavery, and the current movement to do that in our world coming from Jesus and his followers. Let, let me give you another one. Help for the poor. Help for the poor. In your New Testament, when Paul's traveling around the known world, one of the things he's doing is he's collecting money. You may not know this because maybe you don't read the Bible, but he's collecting money. He's traveling around, starting churches, collecting money. And his whole goal is to take the money back to Jerusalem where there's been a famine and, and where people have given away so much money that they're now left destitute and poor. And he's collecting money simply to feed the, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. And so he writes about this in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and in Galatians, he mentions the money that's being raised. Jesus fed poor and hungry people that came. He did it miraculously. And in the walking of Jesus, in walking out that teaching, followers of Jesus have regularly rallied around the plight of the poor in hopes of eradicating poverty, if not globally, at least in this pocket and I've already mentioned that they've started orphanages, but not just orphanages, food pantries around the world. You're shopping this holiday season and somebody's ringing a bell outside the door? The Salvation Army? Followers of Jesus trying to eradicate poverty where they can. The YMCA was started by followers of Jesus in an attempt to take urban kids who were destitute and poor and hungry and bring them in and give them a certain personal discipline, some education, and to feed them healthy meals. 
We have around us Samaritan's Purse, where we put together Christmas gifts in shoeboxes and we send them around the world. Our church connected with Pastor James John because of a Samaritan's Purse gift that was sent to his organization. And in it, somebody had forgotten to pull out a check that was written by a member of our congregation for $5 to help pay for the sending of that gift around the world. They had no idea where the gift was going to go when they wrote the check, put the shoebox together. And it got mistakenly not pulled for the organization, and it arrived at James John's place. And he opens it up, sees the check, realizes he can't cash it, cash it. So he mailed it back and said, thank you so much for your generosity. We can't do anything with this. Please use your money. Give it somewhere else. And that started a communication back and forth between a member of our congregation and that organization. But Samaritan's Purse started to help deal with the plight of the poor around the world. Christians around the world have always cared about the poor. But that's not the only place. It's not just women, children, slavery, and the poor. Look at the medical field. The medical field. All the early scientists were followers of Jesus, and many of them operated their scientific experiments for the glory of God and for the betterment of mankind because they believed that's what Jesus was calling them to. Do your own research. Of course, not all of them, but many of them. Most of them. But let me tell you an interesting sideline of history that most people don't know about. In 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea met, and this is the place where Christianity rallied around the term Trinity. If that's confused you, you can blame the Council of Nicaea for that, all right? But that's not the only thing they did. They declared that wherever a new church was built, it was required that there must also be built in that town a hospital to care for the sick. That one of the things Jesus did in coming to this world is he had compassion upon the sick, Sick who often were, again, disposable, who had access to care for the sick. They're on their way out. But Jesus didn't treat sick people that way. And so the Council of Nicaea determined that everywhere a church would be built, a hospital would be built. And so when Constantine comes on the scene a little bit later, and he legalizes Christianity and promotes it and declares it the state religion, churches flourish, but not just churches, hospitals. And where hospitals flourished, the scientists, uh, scientists flourished in hopes of helping people. And the birth of Jesus in this world doesn't just give us emotional warm fuzzies or give us some spiritual sense of connection to God. It has made a radical difference in human history because the followers of Jesus and walking out the teachings of Jesus have impacted almost every sphere of life. Not just women, not just children, not just the poor, not just slavery, not just medicine, but education. It's interesting now how education often has risen up against the very thing that helped to really catch its foothold in human history. You realize that the first 123 colleges and universities started globally, formally, what we would call the modern university and college movement. They were all started as Christian organizations with the primary directive of helping men and women read the scriptures and be trained for ministry in Christian ministry. Let me go down a few of those schools. Maybe you've heard of them. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Oxford, Cambridge. In the United States, it's extremely dramatic, but globally, it's still a movement that the Christians were the ones that got together. It was the early Puritans that first started the public schools. And here was their whole reason, to teach people to read so they could open the Bible for themselves and discover the profound truth contained in there. All the literacy movements of the early United States until the, until the mid-1900s were led and moved by Christians 
who were walking out the teaching of Jesus that believed it wasn't good for humankind who, were ma- humankind who were made in the image of God to be ignorant of the world around them and unable to have influence in the world around them because they were ignorant. And so to educate a man was to acknowledge the value of a man. To educate a woman was to acknowledge the value of that woman. And all the movement of early education in our country and globally around the world, even to this day, it's what Pastor James John is doing, is to help educate. It had a huge impact on education, which had huge impact on government globally around the world. A reading populace doesn't stand for tyranny. A populace that believes they have value and worth doesn't stand for tyranny. And it had a huge impact I know there's a lot of debate about this, but any realistic historian and any armchair historian could not deny the impact of Christianity on the beginning of our own country. I don't want to overstress it. It's it's an overstatement to say that Christianity was the movement in in, in American history, and it's the only movement. It wasn't, but it was a movement, and it was a major movement. For example, 52 of the first 56 people who signed the Declaration of Independence declared, here was their statement, no king, do you know the rest of it? But King Jesus. No king but King Jesus. And that's not to say that we were a Christian nation through and through. And a lot of them were deists, but many of them declared their allegiance to Jesus and out of their walk with Christ, lived their lives to elevate common people to a position of value. One of the big differences of Jesus coming to this world is that you get a recurring theme that people matter to God. That people who are often discarded have a place. That people who are held captive by ignorance, poverty, sickness, their status in the culture, can have a dramatic encounter with the Savior of the world who was born in that manger, gave his life on a cross, resurrected from a tomb, and in doing that, their lives could be radically changed. And up to us who have been changed by those truths than to put into place structures and movements and organizations in the culture to help elevate people to that status in hopes that each person would come to that place of acknowledging the role of Jesus in their life and on an individual level declare, no king but King Jesus. If Jesus had never been born into this world, this world would be a radically different place. We can't suppose all that that would mean, but it would have a major difference. It's very difficult to take a person committed to Jesus who's also committed to people and hold that person down. Something happens when internally they feel movement by God to make a difference in their world. Now, it's not only these global kinds of impacts that Jesus has made. If Jesus had never been born, here's something I just want you to know theologically, that he would still be the Lord. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, that even before he was born in the world, he already existed. So here are the words. In the beginning was the Word. Now that Word is just a name for Jesus, the Son of God, the light of the world. God's breath moving in the world. And those first three words of our verse, in the beginning, might remind you of another passage in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the first verse in your Bible, in the beginning. So at the beginning of time, before there was a time, there was Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made. He'd still be Lord. In other words, we didn't, He didn't need us. We needed Him. 
He didn't need to come to the world to be validated by all these movements that he's begun. He wasn't lonely. He was Lord, large, and in charge. And yet he still chose to come. It means that his birth is even more special. Our world would be a radically different place if he had never been born. He would still be Lord. The impact would all be negative on us. But the third one is where it really gets personal for me. If Jesus had never been been born, we would not know God in the same way that we can know him today. We would not know God. And we would know him maybe in some movable force, some big guy in the sky. But there are three specific ways we can know God today as a direct result of Jesus coming in this world. Number one, we can know him as a friend. We can know him as a friend. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 15. No longer do I call you servants. I call you friends. For a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. He elevates our status and he helps us to connect with him on a very personal level. Not that our value equals his value, but that we are not way down here. In fact, he condescended to come to us. He gave up the riches of heaven to come be one of us, born of a woman, born among men, lived his life among us so that we could call him friend. He lets us in on the secret of what he's doing in this world. You only know him as a friend. I alluded to this early in the first few sentences, but We get to know him as father. Seven times in the Old Testament, the word father is used. And over 150 times in the New Testament, God is described as father. And Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us to pray in these words in Luke chapter 11. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our father, Abba, father, daddy, God. The image is that we can crawl up on God's lap, give him a hug, and approach him as a loving father to his son or daughter. He was El, he was El Shaddai, Elohim. He was the fearful one in the clouds. He was the beginner of the thunder in the Old Testament. The God who ruled in judgment for many people. Feared and awed. But in the New Testament, he's approachable dad. And this is why, men, God calls us to be good fathers. And to live our lives in dedication to Christ so that we can set for our kids a tangible example of what it means to be a good father so that in looking upon the father that they can see, they can love the father that they cannot see in heaven. He calls us to be friends. He lets us know him as father and he lets us know him as savior. Here's what John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4 says. The father has sent the son as the savior of the world. Matthew 1, 21. And she'll bring forth the Son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. If Jesus had never been born, the idea of friendship with God, not possible. The idea of approaching God as a father, not just one to be feared, but an intimate relationship, not possible. And the idea of a savior restoring that relationship once it's been broken, once we haven't lived up to all that God has called us to, not possible. But because he was born, it has made all the difference. In our world at large, he gave up royalty, so to speak, to live among us. And I know that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. And I know that Christmas has been paganized by our culture. I get it. But it's still important to set aside time to reflect on the fact that Jesus came to this world and the difference it's made. Don't let anybody make you be ashamed to be a Christian. 
And at the same time, how we engage our culture must be respectful and not hostile. We don't win points by making points on Facebook. We win points by walking in the feet of Jesus. Walking in his way. Letting him impact us. And I know when you feel like you're about to be marginalized, there's an attempt to fight. But that's not what Jesus fully called us to. And I'm not saying you can't fight. In your fighting, make sure you wear the servant's helmet, the servant's heart in the fight. And that impacts then how you fight. It's not that we can't fight, but how we fight and the tone with which we fight. And treating people with great respect as if they are valued is the goal. And it doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with us. That's okay. Don't be ashamed. Fight with the servant's heart and be respectful. Long before Duck Dynasty came out, I had this penned, all right? So I'm not trying to do anything here other than preach the message God put on my heart. But I know the feeling people have sometimes that somehow we're being marginalized. We have a proud heritage, but that pride should force us to servanthood in the same way that Jesus did, finding the marginalized and saying to them, you have value. You are worth an investment. We care about you. Honoring our own position in life as husbands and wives and workers and students and also letting the Savior who came to this world impact our lives where we bow our knees before him and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'd like you to save me. And I'd like the Lord of the universe to become the Lord of my life. So right now, would you do this? Would you grab out your connect cards? And let's take a few steps together as a congregation. Our steps this week are what they always are. First couple, they begin with that acknowledgement of the Savior that has come to this world and our need of him. And this, honestly, for a lot of folks, is offensive. The gospel is offensive. It, it makes one declare that he or she isn't perfect. The biblical word for that is a sinner. That's always going to be offensive to people, and we don't hide that fact. We're not t- trying to take away the offense of the gospel around here. It is what it is. And yet, the overwhelming heart of God towards sinners is love, respect, acceptance, embracing. So I'd like to know, and there's anybody in the room right now, they would like to say this, that I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the very first time. You're simply acknowledging I'm a sinner. God sent a Savior, the Lord of the universe. You invite him to be Lord of your life. If you want to do that, check next step A. And when the offering buckets come by at the end of the service, you put that in and then we communicate with you this week. You're not joining our church. You're not committing to give money. I just want to tell you about how awesome it is to begin a relationship with Jesus and let you read that at your own pace. How about next step B? Anybody want to get baptized and celebrate the awesomeness that it is to be in a relationship with Jesus? This is going to be a great year for us in baptism, 2013. I believe 2014 will be great, even better. And, and, and if you check the box, you can be a part of the first baptism in the new year. If you have questions, check it. Put it in the offering bucket when it comes by, and we'll communicate with you through the week. Or how about next step C? Now, we're just going to get very practical on the business we have to do around here. I plan to attend the 7 p.m. Christmas service. Check the box. It lets us better prepare. All right? Or next step D, very similar. I plan to attend the 9 p.m. We're just using those two steps this week as a count, okay? Check them. All right, that's all you got to do. But here's next step E. This is the big one for today. Like Jesus, adding value to people, seeing their value. One of the ways we can do that is give them a chance to know Jesus more. 
and to have a personal encounter with the Savior. And around here, we're doing that tomorrow by this one step. I'm inviting at least one person with me to the Eve Eve service. So if you haven't done it yet, you've got like 24 hours. Get on it. Jill and I have been shopping this week for Christmas, and everybody we've bought something, someone, something from, every person we bought something from, we've given them a Connect card or told them about the thing. It's amazing how when you're buying something from people, <laughs> how willing they are to hear you, all right? Especially if they think they have to, you know, come to close the deal, which I have said to a few people. All right. Anyway. Invite people to this thing, and they're going to hear, hopefully, in language they can understand, with music that they'll enjoy, in an environment of loving and kind people. There isn't a more friendly environment in all of North Cincinnati than this church. They're going to be able to hear about the greatest thing, the greatest gift, this baby born, this Savior who came to the world. And I want you to be a part of that. Let's pray about these things right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for coming into this world, for not considering yourself so highly that you were not willing to condescend to be with us. You took off the royal robes of heaven and you became a human clothed in flesh. Lord, I want to thank you for the heritage we have as followers of Jesus, of people who have gone before us doing great things in your name, by your power, lifting up your teaching and your values. God, I pray in this place for each person right now who's deciding they want Jesus to be the Lord of their life. They're acknowledging, I'm a sinner. God, save me. Wash away my sin and lead my life from this point forward. God, I pray for each person who is planning on being here at this Eve Eve service. God, many of them won't know you. They won't be in an active relationship or it's been a long time. God, I pray that you would start a fire in their lives as a result of what we're doing in this place tomorrow night. Lord, I pray for each person in this room that we would walk with the same heart you have, engage people as if they really matter. We would serve, we would operate with respect, and we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen and amen.